We'll go ahead and get started tonight. We are starting a new book. A couple of these minor prophets are quite short. Tonight we're starting with Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is uh, quite an interesting minor prophet. I suppose in our minor prophet journey, we've seen that really no minor prophet is all that similar to the others. But I think there's a couple standout things about Zephaniah that really make his book and his message uh, unique and perhaps uh, really applicable to us as New Testament Christians. Of course, there's always valuable, applicable truth in each of these books, but I think Zephaniah has a particularly large helping of it. And so I want to introduce who Zephaniah was. We actually know uh, more about him than we do most minor prophets, and I want to get into what Zephaniah has to say and its connection with other points of Scripture. Zephaniah is a book that really is strongly connected with other parts of Scripture. Today we're going to talk about the connections it has to the historical books, but then we're going to talk next week a lot about its connections to the book of Deuteronomy, which actually is all interconnected, but we'll get to that in a moment. So Zephaniah, this is a prophet that finally we know a little bit about because primarily he tells us who he is. So this is the very first verse of Zephaniah. He says this, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, almost undoubtedly Hezekiah, king of Judah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So unlike every other minor prophet, we actually have a genealogy. This is the only genealogy we have of a minor prophet himself. Okay, Obviously, the Bible is full of genealogies, but this is the only one that actually gives us the family tree of a minor prophet. This would mark uh, Zephaniah as a member of the royal household. We see several times in the historical books that there's large royal households. He would be the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah and a distant royal cousin to Josiah, who was currently king at this time. Now, because Zephaniah tells us that he is prophesying during the reign of Josiah, that gives us a firm set of dates where Zephaniah must have preached this prophecy. Now, unfortunately, Josiah is actually a long uh, reigning king, so we can't dial it in that closely. Josiah begins his reign around 640 BC, give or take a few years, and his reign ends, we're very confident, in 609 BC. So this really could have been delivered at any point during Josiah's life uh, to make the scriptural text uh, accurate. So that's still a pretty wide window, but at least we can be confident it is somewhere in that window, which is different some, from some other minor prophets. Now, Zephaniah is clearly personally familiar with the work of many other prophets and other points in Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy no less than nine times in three chapters. That's a lot. But he also quotes Isaiah. Joel, and possibly Habakkuk. I say possibly Habakkuk because there's absolutely identical verses in Habakkuk and Zephaniah. We just don't know who's quoting who. It's possible Habakkuk is quoting Zephaniah. It's possible Zephaniah is quoting Habakkuk. Um, Since we can't date Habakkuk very well, that will have to stay a mystery. But still, the point remains that Zephaniah is very, very comfortable and very knowledgeable about other scripture, and he's going to use it to connect to what he's saying. He'll use phrases, he'll use imagery, and all sorts of things like that. 
Now, in order to understand Zephaniah, we really do need to talk about the context that Zephaniah gives us, and that is the reign of King Josiah. If you wanted to read up on King Josiah, of course, his story is found in two places, not only Second Kings, but also Second Chronicles. A Second Kings is the more complete account, and so that's what we're going to reference today, although Chronicles has the same information, and so both sources are, of course, excellent on this. Uh, the important detail we need to know first is that Josiah was one of the good kings. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, really, as far as Judean kings, this is basically, he is in the top three along with David and Hezekiah as the best and most God-honoring of kings. His main story where he is front and center is found in 2 Kings 21 through 23, and he is also the last good king of Judah. That actually really has multiple meanings, I suppose. He's good in the sense that he actually does what God expects of a king and honors God correctly. He's also the last king of Judah that has any sort of actual power. After Judah or Josiah's reign, Judah is going to rapidly decline until it is destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. Now, Josiah was actually king during the time where Assyria was declining as a nation and falling apart. And this is why Josiah is able to be a powerful king, because the major empire of the world was declining and about to fall to Babylon. Now, Josiah also famously reformed Judah during his reign, and he seemingly was incredibly devout. He obeyed God's command on every opportunity that we can see, except possibly one. Chronicles tells us that Pharaoh Necho was traveling through the coastal highway of Israel and told Josiah, don't fight me. God has commanded me to go north. If you get in my way, I will kill you. And Josiah gets in his way and gets killed. So other than that, he seemingly obeyed God. Was Pharaoh Necho really talking for God? He doesn't claim to be, but he does say God told him that. So that perhaps got Josiah killed early. But other than that, he obeyed God and he did what he was supposed to do. And this is important when we look at Zephaniah because the king might have been doing what he was supposed to do, but it's going to turn out that not everybody was following the king's example. By the way, this is the world of uh, Josiah and Zephaniah. We can see Judah there in the Assyrian Empire, which was collapsing. So this is why Judah is able to maintain its independence and uh, the Egyptians are able to resurge and, and Josiah is going to be killed right about there. Uh, when he finally is killed. But again, we don't. the death of Josiah is not the important part of this particular book, but what's going on during Josiah's reign is important. Now, Josiah's reformation is really important, and I want to read this section that introduces this in 2 Kings. Again, just to give us the context of what Zephaniah is going to say to the Israelites. He's, 2 Kings says this, And the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, 
probably including Zephaniah, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, most likely just Deuteronomy, based on the quotations, possibly the entire law that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, excuse me, and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And the people joined in the covenant. So this is the reformation that occurs under Josiah. Josiah is going to get rid of the false religion, the foreign religions, the evil religions that had been brought into Israel. Some of these had been around literally since they had invaded the land, but the most notorious, the worst examples had actually been brought in by Josiah's own grandfather and father, Manasseh and Ammon, uh, had brought in a number of very evil deity cults with them, and Josiah is going to clean house and get rid of them. We know for a fact that Deuteronomy is rediscovered because it is quoted from extensively, not just by Zephaniah, but by Second Kings as well. This is possibly the entire law uh, that had been lost, at least its exact wording, and was rediscovered somewhere in the temple. And whether it was Deuteronomy or the entire law, clearly Josiah is going to make sweeping changes. Now, there's a big interpretation question that I can't answer. The text doesn't tell us, but I'll leave it for you to consider. And that's this. Is Zephaniah and his message before Deuteronomy is rediscovered and Josiah makes these changes? Or is it afterward? If it's before, it makes a little bit more logical sense. It's easier to fit Zephaniah in because you're going to see Zephaniah talks about how idolatry is rampant in Israel and it needs to be put away. It needs to be destroyed. Josiah is going to do that. So that would certainly lend itself to saying Zephaniah was preaching his message before Josiah reforms. And Josiah does seem to reform about halfway through his reign when Deuteronomy is rediscovered. On the other hand, it's also possible that Zephaniah is given after Josiah reforms because Josiah may have reformed, but that doesn't mean the rest of the Judeans did. And so there is a question out there to be asked, when is this message being delivered? But we can't answer it with the text. However, we can be confident what the text is telling us and what the text is telling the Israelites, no matter when it was actually delivered. This is how Zephaniah starts his prophecy, and it's quite an intense start to prophecy. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Okay, that's pretty serious, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, this is confident language. There is no question about whether this will happen. The earlier minor prophets are oftentimes couched in terms, if repentance does not occur, I will do this. God is no longer using that language. Judah will be destroyed. In fact, Second Kings reinforces this from another prophetic source, the woman Huldah, who lives in Jerusalem. Josiah goes to her after finding Deuteronomy, and he asks her, is God going to judge the nation? And Huldah says, yes, he is. And even though you have repented, Josiah, 
the nation is still going to have to pay for its crimes and be corrected by the judgment that's coming. Now, of course, Josiah himself, because he does repent, God says, Josiah, you're not going to see the judgment. So there is a message of hope for Josiah, but for the nation, there is no escape. The judgment must come. Although there is a hopeful message in Zephaniah as well, which we'll get to by the end tonight. Now, God's language here is actually full of Hebrew technical terms for sacrifice. Zephaniah is giving us an image of Israel as the sacrificial animal that God is putting on the altar. And people are going to gather around it. And the nation is going to be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. That is the kind of image that Zephaniah is giving us. And nothing can stop it. That's what Zephaniah has to say, which is obviously for the nation a message of doom, and it is. This makes us ask serious questions about Josiah's reformation. How effective was it in reality? Again, part of this depends on when Zephaniah was actually given as a message, but much of it doesn't. God says this in Zephaniah 1, 7 and 8. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. So whether Josiah... Reformation was effective or not, we know at the very least that the high officials, the king's family, did not apparently actually take what Josiah was doing to heart. We see an indication that religious error had started at the top and continued to flow down from the leaders to everyone else. Now, Josiah's repentance is legitimate. We know that because the Bible tells us it's legitimate. Second King says he really repented, he really changed his ways. There's no reason to doubt that from Josiah. Uh, but Zephaniah here clearly says that most of the rest of the leadership of Israel is not going to change. Now, Zephaniah is also going to talk about the specific deities that Israel has a problem with. They are worshiping God, but they're also worshiping at the exact same time Baal, Molech, and Assyrian star deities. And by the way, after Josiah died, his own sons and grandsons will bring back these false idols that were probably being worshipped in secret and will place them back in positions of prominence. So Zephaniah, of course, as we would expect from a prophecy of the Lord, is proved correct in the long run. Josiah may have reformed but unfortunately, his people did not. Now, here's the big problem. If Zephaniah has one specific sin that he is zeroed in on, it's really a violation of this commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. Now, we typically think of that phrase as worshiping another god instead of God. Okay, worshiping a false god instead of the real god. But that's not quite what was happening here. What was happening was just as bad, but it's a little different. This is what Zephaniah says. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, these were the Assyrian deities. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, that is the word Yahweh, so this is the real god. And yet swear by Milcom or Molech, the the Canaanite god. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. In other words, not only are people who don't follow the Lord at all being condemned here, 
but also people who have attempted to combine religions, sometimes called religious syncretism. But this basically just means hedging your bets. I'm going to pray to the real God, but I'm also going to pray to these other gods just in case. Okay? This is, of course, false faith. This is absolutely not what God calls us to do or called the Israelites to do. And it should also be pointed out that these gods that were being worshipped, specifically Moloch, who is mentioned by name, are particularly evil deities. Now, there is some debate about whether Moloch here is a specific title or whether it's a broad title. It's actually a general term for Lord or God in Canaanite. But in the Phoenician religion, which we have much better documentation for, Moloch was actually a bullheaded god where children were sacrificed by lighting the statue basically on fire. You'd put sticks in the bottom, you'd superheat the statue, and you would put infants and toddlers into the statue. By the way, Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, did this, and it's specifically said in 2 Kings 21.6 that he did this. Okay, So this was a problem in Israel. This is the kind of deity that the Israelites were worshiping while also worshiping God. In fact, the language there implies that they were worshiping Yahweh in one phrase, and then they were worshiping Moloch, the exact opposite of God, killing children, the exact opposite of what God represents in the same location, with the same prayer, at the same time. This is, of course, completely against what God has commanded. The Israelites are completely missing the point of the commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They're failing in this regard. Now, as a result of this, God says, this has to be purged. This has to be cleansed. This cannot continue. And God reminds the Judeans that he holds all to account. Specifically, he says this in verse 12, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Of course, the people were looking around them and seeing the evil, and they assumed, like perhaps even we do sometimes, that God is turning a blind eye. God doesn't care what's actually going on. That wasn't the case at all. God was holding account. He was paying attention to what was going on, and he would humble the entire nation, and specifically those who were doing these evil things, because they're being called out specifically. God will punish them. It's important never to think that just because God has not acted yet, he will not act at all. Of course, for us as Christians, that's crucially important. We know ultimately that God wins, even though perhaps things are going on that it seems like God should intervene on. He is not missing what's happening. He is not failing to pay attention. He will punish sin the way it deserves to be punished. But praise the Lord, for our sake, there's also a message of hope. Why hasn't God acted yet? Because God actually offers salvation. Now, this is pulling a little bit from where we'll be next week, but it's such an important part of Zephaniah's message. We really can't move on without talking about it. Zephaniah 2, verse 3 says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Now, we know that Judah is doomed. 
It's going to be destroyed. Zephaniah used language that does not have any ways out. There's no stipulations. Maybe this is going to happen. However, personally, God's salvation is always available. There's no reason to personally despair. People who follow God's commands, who put their faith in God, will be saved. This is the same concept as applies to salvation. The doom of sin is set in stone. It cannot be changed. Those who are sinners cannot be in God's presence, and they must be punished for sin. That can't be changed. However, putting your faith in Jesus Christ can bring salvation for you personally. And this is, again, Zephaniah's message. All is not lost for the people if they put their faith in God. Now, again, this connection to Josiah is really our opportunity to see this in action. Because in 2 Kings 22, 19 and 20, Josiah is talking to the prophetess Huldah and he says, I've reformed, what will God do? And God says to Josiah, I have to judge the nation. I have to correct sin. But Josiah, you are not going to live to see it. I am going to give you prosperity and peace during your lifetime because you have repented. God is clear on that. It's because you've repented, Josiah, that the judgment is not going to come during your day. So the message of Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 3, is absolutely borne out in the life of Josiah, who, of course, was alive at the same time. So that's a really cool opportunity for us to see God's mercy and his salvation actually in action at the exact time this prophecy is being given. This is not a false offer by God. He literally fulfills it for Josiah, which will give us confidence that he'll literally fulfill our requests for salvation as well. So this first section of Josiah, or excuse me, Zephaniah, is a message of doom, but it's also a message that God will save those who call upon him. But it's also a personal decision. There is no opportunity here for the king to repent and the entire nation to be saved. Truly, this was never an option at all, but this is Zephaniah's personal call. This is something that each person must decide for themselves. Am I going to serve God or am I going to fall away? And not to spoil next week, but this is where the references to Deuteronomy begin to pour in. Deuteronomy, of course, is Moses encouraging the children of Israel to stay faithful to the covenant and setting out the truths that God has shared that will help the people stay faithful. Zephaniah, in a sense, is going to call back to the very thing that Moses did to the people before they entered the land and again encourage people to act faithfully towards God who will, of course, continue to act faithfully towards them. So that's where Zephaniah is going. He's going to get into it when he starts quoting Deuteronomy heavily in chapters 2 and 3, but we'll talk about that next time. The most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. 
We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for his honor and for his glory.